Welcome again, everybody. It's great to see you this weekend and everybody watching online and at the Montrose Building. Thanks for joining us as well. It's, a, it's good to be together. So let's just get something out of the way. Uh, I did not go to a wedding today. I do not have a funeral later. It's cold. So I put a coat on. <laughs> so the one reason you should wear a suit jacket is the reason that I did. And now everybody thinks I've lost my mind. So... Just wanted to get that out there so we can get past it, all right? Uh, but welcome. Uh, we've been in this series here uh, these last few weeks called How's it, How'd It Start and How's It Going? And uh, what we've been doing is we've been looking at the beginning of what we, we kind of have titled Jesus' public ministry, right? So uh, when you look at the Bible, uh, we would know a lot about Jesus' birth, and then we would know like some about his childhood, not a ton, but some, but most of what we know about Jesus is the, the last three years of his life. And it would start from like where, where we're talking, the beginning of his public ministry, and then it would end with his resurrection and, uh, and his ascension back to heaven. And so that window is the window where most of Jesus' teaching happens, most of his miracles, all those kind of things. And we're at the part of that uh, story where Jesus is kind of coming forward for the first time. <clears throat> and he's doing a lot of things for the first time. And he's like publicly announcing that he is the Messiah. Uh, he's God. He's the Lord. And as he announces that, it causes a lot of tension. Uh, so kind of everybody isn't real sure what to do with that. A bunch of people had kind of their agenda for Jesus and what they wanted him to be. And he's coming forward and saying, well, this is who I actually am. Like I've come to to preach the gospel to the, to the poor, to give good news, good news to the poor, set the captives free, let the blind see again, and I am the promised Messiah. And so it's fascinating, like you get, like the religious elite folks are kind of, you know, blowing a lid over it over here. And then these guys who actually don't care a lot about God, they're kind of blowing a gasket too, because he's not, not who they want him to be. And he's in essence looking at them and saying, that's the way it is, like I am who I am, and, and what I've done is to call you to come and be like me and to follow me. And that's, that's like the essence of my mission, the essence of my, my message. So we've been looking at that. Uh, that's online, that's on the app, that's on the podcast. If you buy me sushi, I'll come with my notes and preach a sermon to you again. Uh, but it's kind of out there. And if you're curious about Jesus... Um, it's, it may be a good listen for you. It may be, you might discover some things about like his heart and his mind and what he's like, all right? So that's what we've been doing. This weekend as we, as we wrap this up, we're gonna look at another one of these first. Uh, one of, you know, Jesus kind of coming forward, so he's doing a lot of things for the first time. So we're gonna look at another, another one of these first and, and kind of get our head around it a little bit. So where we're gonna hang out is in the book of John. So if you got a Bible and you wanna go to John chapter two, this is on the app. Uh, if you wanna use the Bibles in the chairs, it's page 861 in those Bibles. And uh, in, in John chapter two, what we, where we find Jesus is kind of in this everyday situation. Uh, he's at a wedding. So uh, uh, he got invited to a wedding. So his mom was there, he was there, and a bunch of his, the disciples, his friends came too. And at this wedding, uh, Jesus does kind of his first uh, public miracle. And it, it's a big deal. So let's look at it and then we'll, we'll talk about it, all right? So John chapter two, verse one. The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Canaan and Galilee. 
Uh, Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he says. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing, each one holding about 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of the ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water, that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he comes out with the less expensive wine, but you've kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Canaan in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him, all right? So Jesus turns water into wine and this happens at this wedding and it's one of these first and the big first that, that we like need to get our head around here a little bit is that it's the first time Jesus reveals his glory, right? So everything about the circumstance Everything about kind of the cultural pressures around it and then the miracle, the purpose for the miracle is all tied to this idea of Jesus revealing his glory. So Jesus is showing the people, the disciples, the servants and us who he is and what he's like. And if you ever kind of wanted to get your head around Jesus's like thought process and get your head around his heart a little bit, Uh, This would be one of those places that you would do that because the whole purpose of this miracle was so that we could understand him. That's kind of what that means. Like he's revealing himself to us and he's revealing his his glory, okay? So we'll look at this and we'll dig it apart a little bit. And what what we're gonna see is this. I I want us to see Jesus' relationship with his mom because it changes here at the wedding. Uh, We're gonna look at how Jesus uses the simple for the extraordinary And then we're gonna look at Jesus's willingness to bless everybody, okay? And we'll kind of discover this as as we go through here. So uh, as we're getting into it, let me me set it up a little bit because we kind of have to step back into the ancient Jewish world a little bit to understand the dynamics that Jesus is functioning with here, right? So in the ancient world, weddings are big deals, kind of like they're big deals now. You know, weddings are big deals. Uh, They're expensive deals, kind of like they are now. And, uh, and you would feed the guest a lot like how you would do that now. One of the big differences between now and then is in the ancient world, the, the burden of the wedding wasn't on the bride's family, right? So traditionally in our world, the bride's family pays for the wedding, which is why I'm glad I have five boys. So like the bride's family pays for the wedding, right? In the ancient world, that responsibility would have shifted a little bit. And the way that we would think of it is this, we would think that the responsibility rested on the groom. So in the ancient world, uh, you, you didn't necessarily like fall in love and like have a romantic Disney kind of a wedding. In the ancient world, you kind of like picked out a girl and asked her dad if you could have her. It's kind of the way that it worked, right? 
And the dad, when he was looking at you, deciding if he was going to give you his daughter or not, one of the things he wanted to know is if you were the groom, can you afford her? Like, can you care for her? So oftentimes in the ancient world, the groom, before the wedding, would build the wife a house, his, his, his future wife a house. And the father-in-law, in essence, would look and say, okay, well, you can provide a house. And then he might even furnish that house. Like, okay, you can provide for that. And then the groom might provide the food and the wine for the wedding. And all of this was, was cultural and custom, but it also was almost like legal, right? If you proved yourself, then we'll give you the, the bride, right? So in this circumstance, Jesus invited this wedding and this bridegroom runs out of wine. This is a, this is a very like different situation than we would be used to, right? At, at a minimum, it's humiliating, right? I, I didn't plan well, because in, in an ancient world, you didn't like run down to the party supply store all these and get more more wine like you you had to like a year ahead of time plan to grow the grapes you know kind of thing so it was, so at a minimum it's like embarrassing it's a statement that he wasn't really ready to be married so it's embarrassing it's humiliating at a maximum the the bride's family could withdraw and be like i'm sorry no wife for you you know, and, and say that that's not the way it's going to work. So this is the situation that Jesus is in. And he's invited to this celebration. And that's why it mattered to Mary, to Jesus's mom. Like this was like a deal, right? And she's like, you have to do something. And she wasn't like, get, you know, get, get Peter to run down to Giant Eagle. Like there, that wasn't an option. Like something major had to happen for the pressure of this situation to be relieved, right? So Jesus's mom comes to Jesus. Now, I want us to see a few things as we watch this play out because remember, Jesus is revealing his glory. So he's teaching us or showing us something about him that we wouldn't know otherwise, okay? So the first thing I want us to see is this, and we'll kind of go through it. But the first thing I I want us to see is this. Jesus right here on these pages Jesus' relationship with his mom changes. And, and I, wrote it, I wrote it this way. Jesus chooses his mission over his mama. And, and, and that starts to happen right here, okay? So Mary comes to Jesus. Jesus looks at her and he says, dear woman, this is not our problem. My time has not yet come, okay? Now, some of your translations in your Bible, some of the older ones just say, woman, <laughs> woman, this is not our problem. And if, if your mom's with you, I dare you to call her woman and I would like you to video it because I, I would like to laugh at you the rest of your life, right? So that, this sounds weird to us and even that would be offensive to us, right? To look at somebody and say, woman. In the ancient world, this, this phrase doesn't translate in English real well. This is not derogatory, what Jesus is saying to this, what this is, is this is formal. So the, the, the way that we would hear this in our, in our modern ear is we would hear this as ma'am. Ma'am, yes ma'am, no ma'am, excuse me ma'am, right? We would hear it as a formal thing. What's weird about it is it's not warm. So, so it, I, I would look at my mom, you would look at your mom, and, and if, you did, if she asked you to do something you didn't want to do, you'd be like, mom, that's warm. 
Jesus talks to Mary almost like she's a stranger. Excuse me, ma'am. Excuse me, ma'am, that's not our problem, right? Now what's happening here? This is important, so let's get our head around here for a second, okay? So Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, Mary Joseph, his earthly father would have been passed away by now, right? You, You don't hear about Joseph out of Jesus' childhood at all. And in the ancient world, like men only lived maybe 40 years old. So like Joseph had, had passed away. Mary is obviously alive and she's alive even after Jesus is crucified and, is, uh, and raises again from the dead because the apostle John takes care of her. So we know that. So when Joseph died, especially in the ancient world, Jesus being the oldest son, he would have slipped into the role of the father of the family. So the ancient world, it wasn't like dad died, mom's in charge. It's not the way it worked. It was dad died, oldest son's in charge. And Jesus was the oldest son. So by the time that Jesus is at this point, he's probably been caring for his mother for years. And he would have provided for her and he would have protected her and he would have watched over her and he would have even led and directed the family. And then Jesus has this very unique relationship with his mother because he was born of a virgin. So like, the, the miracle of the virgin birth from the time that the angel talks to Mary forward, like that's a unique bond between Jesus and his mother. And then his mother also knew that he was the lamb of God takes away sins of the world. So she knew that something like the cross was in his future that he was unique. So they would have been very close, very bonded, and he would have cared for her on like every level of her life since his dad passed away. So for her to come up and say, Jesus, we have a problem, and he says, excuse me, ma'am. And when you're looking at this, this is what's happening. I I read a commentary, one theologian said, he said, this is the point that Jesus' relationship with his mom changes, and I agree with him. At this point, his relationship with his mom changes. And what Jesus is saying to her when he responds to her this way in part is this. He's looking at her and he's saying, Mom, ma'am, listen, uh, I'm, I have a calling from God. And, for, and, th- and this is the first time my glory is going to be revealed. So I'm coming forward here. And Mom, you have to understand, you have been the object of my greatest affection and you have been the object of the investment of my life and you have been the defining factor in my life. What's best for mom is what I need to do. And mom, that's changing now. My heavenly father has a mission for me and you're gonna hate it, mom. You're gonna hate it because I'm gonna suffer, I'm gonna be persecuted, I'm gonna be ridiculed, I'm gonna be crucified, and you don't really know it yet, mom, but you're gonna watch it. And my affection and loyalty to you cannot cause me to hesitate to do what my heavenly father has called me to do. It's a big deal, big deal. Now, I would say this, as a Christ follower, not a Jesus fan, remember a Jesus fan are people who kind of like Jesus and they're like, 
I'm pro-Jesus instead of pro-Buddha like or something. You know? But as a Christ follower, when I look at Jesus and I say, I give my life to you, I will love you with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. You will define and direct my life. Ready? There will be a time in all of our lives where we look at the people that we have the deepest affection and love and honor for and have to look at them and say, I have to follow Christ first. But Jesus later on, he says to his disciples, he says, hey, unless you're willing to hate your father, mother, sister, brother, pick up your cross and follow me, then you can't even be my disciple. And he, he obviously doesn't mean that literally. But he's looking at this and saying, unless I am the primary, the primary drive, the primary affection, the primary calling, the primary definer, then you're, you're actually not a follower unless that is true of you. And even Christ himself stepped into that tension. Because right? that, that's hard. Right? That's hard. And, and Mary didn't understand it or comprehend it fully like most of us don't and the disciples struggled with, but Jesus knew what he was doing. And here, in this time when he is first revealing his glory, this is part of what he's revealing and part of what he would want to know us to know about, about him, right? Now, the, the, the situation goes on, right? Situation goes on. So Jesus, uh, Jesus starts to get and move toward the miracle. And I want, I want us to see a couple things about this miracle that are kind of fascinating, ready? Here's the first thing I want us to see. I want us to see that he uses the mundane to accomplish the miraculous, right? He uses the mundane to accomplish the miraculous, right? So standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jer Jewish ceremonial washing. So uh, Jewish ceremonial washing um, was a thing that ancient Jewish people did uh, before they ate kind of habitually and it was a spiritual act, but it was a habitual act. It wasn't a, a, a special act. Probably, probably the thing that we would think of the most like that is like praying before you eat, right? So somebody pray. You know, somebody going to pray, somebody going somebody to gonna say grace, right? And, and I was told that if you didn't do that, you get stomach cramps. Uh, but that's not true. That's not at all true. My, my mother lied to me my whole life. And so, like, but, but we just do it. Or sometimes we'll be like, uh, like, we'll be praying. We'll be like, and God, help everybody have a safe trip home, right? So it's, it's a spiritual act. I don't mean to downplay it, but it's like so habitual that you don't really think about it. So Jewish ceremonial washing they had special stone jars full of water and they would do that, but it's a common thing. It's a normal thing. And these stone jars are super common. I've actually seen uh, a couple of these. Uh, I was in Israel and they, they told me it was the one, but I didn't smell any wine in it. So, but, so I don't think it was the one, but, but it, they're just stone jars. That's that literally what they are. Like somebody got stone and cut a jar out of it. They're, they're no big deal. They're actually all over the place. They were a very, very common tool. And when Jesus, he's revealing his glory, he's teaching us something about stuff. So when he, when he decides to do his first big miracle, he does it with these. Just like a kitchen utensil thing in the back room, right? 
and he changes water to wine. Now, I want you to take that thought that Jesus uses the mundane to to do the miraculous, and I want you to add it to this one, because I want you to see two things about this, all right? So add it to this one. Jesus is a God who entrusted the servants with the sacred. He entrusted the servants with the sacred. So he's going to do a miracle, but who does he do the miracle in front of? He does the miracle in front of the servants, right? So you start reading the passage. Mary told the servants, do whatever he says. Jesus told the servants, get the water, put it, fill those up. Uh, the servants followed his instructions. And then when, when, the, when the wine's taken to the master's ceremonies, only the servants knew what had happened. So Jesus does this miracle. His first big miracle is revealing his glory. And he's doing it in front of the servants, right? The wait staff. At, at best, these guys are the waiters. They might have been like bond servants, like they had to be there and didn't have a choice in it. But anyway, you swing it, they were at the bottom of the social ladder and the power structure. They, they were not at the top of those things. And Jesus turns water into wine using the mundane to do the miraculous and entrusting servants with the sacred. Now, I don't want us to breeze past this because it's a big deal. Ready? Jesus does a miracle. First big one, water the wine. Ready? There's no cameras. There's no Instagram. It's not a solid gold chalice. There's no platform. It's not Jesus gathering everybody who could pay the door cost. He didn't go out and get a $5,000 suit and $10,000 sneakers. He didn't, he didn't put on in a crusade. It didn't do it just as the lights came down and the music went up. He went into the back room. He's like, those, those will do. You guys, you guys are gonna wanna watch this. And he used the mundane to do the miraculous and he trusted the sacred to the servants. And he did that because he's revealing his glory. He's teaching us something about himself. So why everyday stone jars and why the servants, why would he choose the mundane and the servants, ready? Because that's what he is like. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, that there's nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. If Jesus were in the crowd and you didn't know who he was, he'd walk right past you. Never had a halo, didn't have a glow, didn't go and get a spray on tan, wasn't dressed up, didn't have an entourage, didn't show up in a bins. Nothing, just normal. And then the Bible says in Philippians chapter two, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. He on purpose did that. He, he didn't step on a stage and fill an auditorium and make sure that YouTube was live when it all happened. Back room, those jars will do. You guys wanna watch this? Because that's who he is he revealed his glory through things and people who reflected his personhood. That's a big deal. That's a super big deal. 
Because God uses the mundane in your life all the time. If you're, if you're waiting for a flash of lightning and a super special get rich, get healed, get your hair back, Jesus isn't going to do that. It's not how he rolls, not usually. But if you're looking and saying, are his mercies new every morning? Was I, was I able to, to overcome my weaknesses today? Did God heal my relationship a little bit more? Was I, did I have sobriety today? Normal people doing normal things and God showing up in their life in massive ways, right? Why? Because that's who Jesus is. Like, that's what he's like. That's what he's like. And in a setting and in a miracle where he's revealing himself, right? he would want us to know that about him. Okay? Now, here's the... Here's the last thing I want you to see. So he turns the water into wine and the servants watch it and they take the wine out to the master of ceremonies. This is what I want you to see, ready? I want you to see that Jesus is a, is a generous and merciful gift giver. He's a generous and a merciful gift giver. So here's the scenario. The master of ceremonies call the bridegroom over a host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then, then everyone has a lot to drink. When, the, when they have a lot to drink, he brings out the, least, the less expensive wine. But you've kept the best until now. I like to say that the only people on planet Earth who know what wine's supposed to taste like are those guys. Because Jesus made wine, and it was good wine. It wasn't, he, didn't, he wasn't like, run down there to Walmart and get some yellowtail. Like he... You guys are drinking way too much wine if you got that joke, by the way. I just want to confront you about that. But he was like, no, 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 this is the, this is the Josh. This is the good stuff, right? And the best wine comes out because Jesus made it so much so that the, the, the head of the ceremony noticed it, called the bridegroom over and talked to him about it, okay? This is fascinating, right? Jesus is a generous, merciful gift giver. And he gave a gift, right? He gave a gift to this groom. I was reading a scholar and he said this, I thought it was really, really interesting. He said the gift was for the bridegroom, the miracle was for the disciples. The gift is for the bridegroom. The miracle was for the disciples. Now I want you to catch this. You with me here? I want you to catch this. Ready? Jesus gets sucked into a situation that has nothing to do with him. He goes to a wedding. That he was he's just at a party. His mom comes up and involves him. He's got nothing to do with the situation. He even looks at her. He's like, this is not my problem. And Jesus is sucked in. So he's in a situation that has nothing to do with him. And he's in a situation that he is not responsible for. You know who's responsible for it? The bridegroom. 
Because it really doesn't matter how you swing it. The bridegroom did not plan this thing correctly. He did not have enough food and wine for the party. And that's a logistical issue in the ancient world. You, you can't run over to Giant Eagle and grab something. So a year ago, when he's looking at his wife's family saying, can I have the girl? And they're like, well, you demonstrate that you're mature enough to handle it. He had a year to plan to deliver on that commitment, and he blew it. Jesus is not responsible for it. The bridegroom is in a bed that he's responsible for. It's your fault and it's your problem. And by the way, it actually is your fault and your problem. You made the bed, you should lay in it. I just came to a wedding with my mom and my friends. Ready? So for a bridegroom who's responsible for the situation, for a bridegroom who made choices in their life that let, whether they're intentional or not, they led to the situation. For a bridegroom who tripped and face planted on the day that he needed to deliver his responsibility. Ready? Listen. And for a bridegroom, are you ready? Who did not ask for Jesus' help. A bridegroom that does not believe that Jesus is the son of God, does not believe that Jesus has a power for, power for a miracle and is not a follower of Jesus. Jesus gives a gift to a person who doesn't deserve it, didn't ask for it, and wouldn't even think that Jesus could deliver on it. And he doesn't just give a cheapo gift. He gives the greatest wine that has ever been on the face of the earth to what we would say is a non-believer or what the Bible would say is a sinner. The Bible says, the Bible says that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Every good thing in our life is from God. The Bible also says this, the Bible says it rains on the righteous and the unrighteous, which is the Bible's way of saying that God is generous to people who follow him as well as people who reject him. If you got up today and you turned a knob and water came out and you could put a cup under that water and drink it, if you got up today and you were relatively warm if you went to your closet and you had a choice of clothing, if your relationship with food today was more about what you shouldn't eat than what you could eat, if you got in a vehicle and drove here and you will go home tonight to a roof over your head, statistically, you're in the top 3% of the wealthiest people on the face of the earth today and all of that is God's goodness to you and that that is also the experience of the majority of North America most of who don't follow Jesus the Bible also says 
that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Jesus looks at a guy he doesn't know, who doesn't know him, who doesn't care about him, who totally messed his life up, and he gives him a generous gift and a merciful gift. And he's revealing something about himself. He's telling us about himself. This is how I am. When I interact with your sin, when I interact with your failure, when I interact with your choices, I know. And before you even ask, the Bible says that he lavishes his mercy and his kindness and his love upon us. So the gift, the gift is for the bridegroom. Now I love the statement. The scholar goes on, he says, the miracle is for the disciples. This is fascinating. So he does the miracle, water to wine. This is what the Bible says. This miraculous sign at Canaan and Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. His disciples believe in it. Isn't that fascinating? So the disciples, they see all this play out. They see, they see you know, I'm choosing my mission over my mama. The, the, the jars, the servants, the water, the wine. They see this play out. And their response to this is that they believe more deeply in who Christ is. Ready? I want you to catch this. This is super important. Are you ready? The disciples saw God's generosity and mercy directed towards someone else. And they believed more deeply in Jesus because of that. We live in a culture today in which many would teach I believe falsely that if you are a follower, God will bless you because you are one. And the more you believe, the more you will be prospered. You'll get more money and you'll get more health and your hair will grow back faster. And everything will go your way. And if it's not going your way, it's because you're not following faithfully enough. And in, when you try harder and God doesn't bless you more, that would be the source of a lot of our angst with God and even doubting if he truly loves us. The disciples are not the recipients of the gift. The disciple, they weren't prospered, they weren't blessed, they weren't helped. The guy who doesn't even believe in Jesus was. But they believed more deeply. Jesus often looked at people who were fans of his. They were following him around. Lots of likes, lots of shares. And they, they looked at that, and Jesus would look at them oftentimes, and he would say some version of this, if, if you think I'm a winemaker, you're not actually following me. He, one time he fed 5,000 people with some kid's lunch, 
And he, he looked at the people, they were following. He's like, you just want me to feed you again. I'm not doing that. If you think I'm a bread maker, a fish multiplier, you're not, my, you're not actually a follower of mine. Jesus would look and say, if you, if you resent that I bless people and I'm generous to people who don't love me, you don't understand me. You don't understand what I'm doing. Because they, 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 don't even, they, they don't even go to church and look what happened to them and I go every week and that doesn't happen for me. If you resent that, you, you, don't, you don't even understand me. And what the disciples saw and what they believed in was the kindness and the mercy and the generosity of the one that they knew was the Messiah. And what blew them away was not what they could get out of Jesus. What blew them away is what Jesus gave to someone and that his generosity was not at all dependent on their acceptance or fellowship of him. They understood, his, Mary's revealing his glory. They understood his heart and they understood his passion and they fell in love with that in like a deeper and deeper way. The gift for the groom. And we don't know what happened to the groom. We don't know his story. But if the groom walked away and said, that's just incredible wine, somebody bailed me out, and that was the end of his interaction with Jesus, The disciples walked away and said, this is a loving and merciful and generous God. We will follow him. We're gonna sing a song here in a minute. And uh, I love the refrain of this song. What it says is, uh, it says you're, it's talking, you know, singing to Jesus. It says your mercy triumphs over judgment. And this is exactly what's happening as Jesus is revealing himself for the first time. He's looking and saying, guys, this is who I am. This is who I am. I, I am, I am this, and my mercy and my generosity, my love is always gonna be at the forefront, right? So that idea that God's mercy triumphs over tragic... Over, over his mercy triumphs over judgment, that idea lands differently depending on kind of what chair you're in. So if you're in the chair of a sinner, that's like the best news you'll ever hear. Because you made that bed. We all did. Right? Your sin is your responsibility. And you owe a debt that you can't pay. And there's a God, whether you know him or not, or acknowledge him or not, or care about him or not, he knows you, and he loves you, and he understands the situation that you're in, and he will change water to wine 
spiritually. Because you are the object of his love and his mercy and his grace and his compassion. And if you'll accept that, his mercy will triumph over what you're responsible for. It's good news. Now, if you're in the chair of the disciple, you'd hear that phrase a little bit differently. You would hear that phrase, your mercy triumphs over over judgment, and you would hear that, and you should think, that happened to me. It happened to me. Like, I made a bed. I was laying in it. Like, I totally screwed up the wedding. And Jesus turned water into wine for, for me. Right? And so you would hear that as with gratitude and like awareness. Right? That's one way you hear it. Here's the other way that you would hear it. And that should be reflected through me. Because a lot of God's goodness happens to people that we wouldn't be good to. And just as God lavishes his mercy and grace and compassion on us, we who are his followers and who watch him do that to the people around us because we love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we wind up loving people like that, our neighbor, as ourself, our enemy as ourself, the ungrateful, unasking, un... and the kindness that God drew us to himself with is the same kindness that comes from his people. And it's a magnet. So when I hear his... His mercy triumphs over judgment. I hear that happening to me. And then I hear that as a reminder for how I live, how I love, how I follow Christ. He revealed that to us, right? He's showing us that this is who he is and this is what he's like. All right. Would you pray with me, bow your heads for a minute, and the the band will move the stage around while we're praying and then take us into a time of worship. Jesus, would you meet us in this place, Lord, and help us with it? Lord, this, this passage of scripture just hit me between the eyes this week. I don't know if I'm tired or what my deal is, God, but just my constant fight to hold on to my own life, to put up qualifications of whether you're somebody else is worthy of my patience and love. And so just forgive me of that, God. It's, it's nonsense. And in light of your goodness, 
light of this abundant generosity that we literally wake up to every morning. And for your followers, God, deepen our faith and even help us to celebrate that you're good to other people, even as you're good to us. And Father, for the one here that's the sinner, you tell us about our sins because you love us. You're not mad. You're not bitter. You've given your life and we need to know why. So God, let them see your generosity, this incredible gift. And God, through your kindness, would you even in these moments draw them to repentance? Father, as we sing these words to you, let them be true in our heart.